danger is stealing in as relapse comes above the den. It's Hello and welcome to episode 329 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. I'll be joined shortly by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts, and by our guest, Maria Konnikova, who is in New York City, New York. Uh, for those who don't know, Maria, um, well, first off, this is her second appearance on the show. Uh, she first appeared on episode 247, uh, which was back in February of 2018. Before becoming a poker player, uh, Maria was a, a journalist, a psychologist, a writer who really did not know anything about poker. And she talks about that a bit in this interview. And she decided that she wanted to write a book about poker. Um, ended up getting coaching from Eric Seidel or, or working with Eric Seidel and some other folks. Uh, it was sort of an experiment of, you know, could she become uh, a successful professional poker player? Uh, and she did. <laughs> so um, she basically went from zero. I mean, the book, I believe, was supposed to be about her kind of going from zero to, to professional poker player or attempting to do that. And um, she ended up kind of postponing the book because she was uh, doing so well with the poker, finding the poker so so gratifying. Uh, so she had a lot of success in the poker world. And uh, I mean, she was already somewhat successful by the time we interviewed her in 2018. But of course, she's got a lot more under her belt now. So among other things, you know, it can be interesting to uh, compare these two. There's no need to listen to the first interview before you listen to this one. But I do consider uh, episode 247 with Maria Konnikova one of the best episodes episodes that we've done. And in fact, you'll hear us talking about this at the end uh, of the show. Um, so I, you know, I, I do, if you, if you enjoy this interview, certainly go back and listen to 247. Before we get into that, I do want to let folks know that we've got a special event going on right now at the Thinking Poker store located at knitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. 100% of June proceeds will be going to a charitable organization called Give Directly. Give Directly is a 501c3 nonprofit, and uh, they give money directly to people living in poverty. It is one of the most efficient and effective forms of charitable giving. Um, it's an organization that uh, I think does great work. We're happy to support them. And 100% uh, of your spending at nickcast.com will go to them. So even the like fees that would ordinarily go to our uh, like e-shopping providers, uh, we're going to be covering those out of pocket. So 100% of what you spend will go to give directly in the month of June. It's a great time to pick up uh, play Optimal Poker, if you've not read that, uh, or play the new Play Optimal Poker 2. Those are both available in ebook. Over there, you can get all of our premium podcasts, including uh, Coaching Carlos, Weekend Warriors, the Single Table Tournaments podcast with Carlos, uh, the Weekend Warrior Tournament edition, uh, and also some older books from myself and Nate. All of that is available at knitcast.com. For strategy, we've got a hand from friend of the show, Yaga Smurf. 
This was played at 5 cent, 10 cent, no limit on Ignition. It's a six max game. Uh, Under the Gun opens for three big blinds and our hero is on the button with King Queen of Hearts. I'm gonna give you the whole hand uh, and then I will talk through some of the specific decision points and questions that Yaga Smurf had. So, Under the Gun opens for three big blinds. Uh, he's starting with 80 big blinds in the hero cover. So we're 80 big blinds effective. Under the Gun opens for three. Hero calls on the button with King Queen of Hearts. And Yaga Smurf says, here I feel like I'll have position on the preflop razor, keep my hand strength a little hidden, and with two behind me, don't want to enlarge the pot yet. Also, the raises from under the gun, so his range is stronger, uh, given his position and that he has not raised from early position in the last hour, and I don't want to be four bad out of the pot if he has aces, kings, queens. My hand is too strong to fold, so I call. Flop with 7.5 big blinds in the pot, their heads up, and the flop is ace 2 2, ace of clubs, deuce of hearts, deuce of clubs. So our hero has nut no pair, uh, backdoor straight draw, backdoor flush draw, holding king queen of hearts. Under the gun bets 5.4 big blinds into the 7.5 big blind pot, hero calls. Yaga Smurf says, Villain will bet here a lot with ace-x, uh, ace-king to ace-jack, ace-x suited, uh, probably with lower kickers, um, with pairs, connected Broadway, and air. I call and plan to take control if the flush comes and he checks. This is obviously how I play suited Broadway, since that is actually what I am playing. The suit doesn't matter as much if he checks. Turn with 18.3 big blinds in the pot is the seven of clubs. So board now, ace of clubs, deuce of hearts, deuce of clubs, seven of clubs. Under the gun checks, hero bets 13.1 big blinds into the 18.3 big blind pot. Under the gun calls the 13.1 big blinds. And our hero again has king, queen of hearts. Yaga Smurf says, his check gives me my opening to play a flush draw that hits. Not representing much else here when I do that. Having the more condensed range allows me to have more suited connectors and suited Broadway with gaps in my range. His call makes me think he has an ace. I think he bets the flush or at least check raises if he hits. I doubt pocket aces due to elimination of cards, rarity of getting aces, and no check raise. Uh, also in his range are kings through jacks, maybe even tens with a club. Uh, I didn't consider his actual holding or these pairs at the time of the hand, to be honest. River. 44.5 big blinds in the pot is the seven of spades. Final board, ace of clubs, deuce of hearts, deuce of clubs, seven of clubs, seven of spades. Our hero holds king, queen of hearts. Yaga Smurf says, seems like his most likely holding is ace king through ace jack without a flush, maybe ace 10. The problem is I doubt he will fold an ace and it will take a large bet to even get him to consider it. So my options are check and lose or bet 40 to 50 big blind and hope he folds. I chickened out. Should I have made the bet? Was it reasonable to represent a flush from a condensed range in this way? The villain ends up showing ace-king with the king of clubs, so we have the nut flush draw on the turn in addition to his top pair. Yaga Smurf says he did have the ace, but I didn't consider the king of clubs that allowed him to call the turn bet. Should he have check-raised me there with the nut flush draw? Should I have done that if the ends were reversed? Does his king of clubs reduce my chances of representing the flush draw, or are there enough suited connectors in my condensed range to allow it? Thanks and keep up the great work the two of you do. I love the new book. So first off, thank you, Yaga Smurf. Thank you for writing. Thank you for the kind words about Play Optimal Poker 2, which is currently available in ebook format 
at either Amazon.com or NickCast.com and available in paperback from Amazon. So we'll take this decision by decision. Pre-flop, I like calling with this, uh, basically for the reasons that Yagas Murph gives. I would even say um, you're not really, I I wouldn't describe it as keeping your hand strength hidden. I think you don't have all that much. I mean, you have a decent hand. You you have solid equity, but um, you don't have, you know, so much hand. Like, it's not like you're slow playing here by by calling. Uh, I mean, I think you, this is, you know, a hand that, that anyone would expect you would have in your calling range. So I wouldn't necessarily say that you're like keeping the strength hidden or, or somehow um, you know, c- concealing your strength, nor is that, um, I, mean, I think that's not generally something you should do. Like raising should also keep your hand strength hidden. And what I mean by that is if you had pocket aces and you re-raise, um, are you showing strength? Kind of, but your strength is hidden because you can also re-raise with hands weaker than pocket aces, like ace five suited or queen jack suited. Um, so, you know, the fact that you're re-raising doesn't have to mean that you have a strong hand. So I would encourage you when you actually have strong hands, not to assume that the way that you keep your strength hidden is by pretending you don't have a strong hand. Uh, generally, it should be the threat of bluffs that provides your opponent with their incentive to pay you off with uh, less than premium hands. Anyway, I do think calling is the right play with king, queen of hearts. The other thing I'll say is, um, I mean, I think the main reason you want to call is just that you're not going to be, you you don't benefit that much from folds. Um, You benefit some from folds, but uh, I just, you know, I don't think you're an equity favorite here where you want to be making the pot larger. I mean, partly because of players behind you, but also just against an out of the gun um, open, as Yaga Smurf says, you just don't have that much equity where you want to be making the pot larger. Folding to a four bet is actually not that big of a deal, given the, I mean, if, if Yaga Smurf thinks the only hands that are going to four bet are like aces, kings, queens, maybe ace, king, it's actually not a big deal to fold king, queen of hearts to that four bet because you have very little equity anyway, right? Like if your opponent four bets aces and you fold king, queen suited, what have you lost? I mean, you've lost the money you've already put in the pot, but most of that was gone anyway, because when he has aces and you have king, queen suited, you're probably not winning the pot, right? He's a, he's a huge favorite with aces. So folding to a four bet from aces, kings, uh, really not a big deal at all. I mean, to queens, you're losing some equity. Now you start folding, you know, to jacks, uh, to queen, jack suited, if you ever four bet something like that, then you're really folding away a lot of equity. Those are the hands that I would worry more about folding to a four bet. So I think there are other reasons not to three bet. Um, I actually don't think it would be that big deal if you got four bet because mostly his four betting range would just be so strong that you wouldn't have much equity against it anyway, and folding to it would not be that big of a deal. That's kind of an academic point. So we see the flop. Ace, deuce, deuce, two clubs, backdoor flush draw for the hero who's holding king, queen of hearts, and under the gun bets 5.4 big blinds. Um... The main, this this really is my main uh, criticism of the hand. I don't think it's a good idea to call if your only plan is, you know, hope the flush gets there so that you can represent it. Because a lot has to go right. I mean, first the flush has to get there, which is not that likely to happen. Certainly on the next street is not that likely to happen. Uh, I mean, there's only nine, uh, or I guess ten <laughs> clubs that could. Uh, well, I guess if we if if the villain doesn't have any clubs in his hand, I guess there's eleven clubs that could come. But regardless, a club is just not coming that often on the turn. And um, so, first off, you need a club to come. Second, you need the villain to check when the club comes. Third. You need the villain to fold to your bluff after checking. 
So that's a parlay of like three different things, each of which is, you know, not all that likely in, in its own right. Uh, we may have listed them in order of unlikelihood, in fact. So I don't think there's really all that much profit in, I mean, so this, that certainly can't be your only source of profit. It can't just be, well, you know, this is a money losing call unless that club happens to come in. But if it does, uh, you know, then, you know, it, it's not like you're making all that money with, with that kind of play. In general, bluffs uh, are, if you don't have some kind of like good blocker or really significant range advantage, um, bluffs tend to be roughly zero EV, maybe slightly profitable, but um, here, just like drawing to the opportunity to bluff by itself is, is I mean, it's just not worth that. It's certainly not worth putting in uh, like a two thirds pot bet, larger like a 70% pot bet, just hoping that you're gonna you know, get an opportunity to represent a flush later. Now you do have a little bit more going on with your hand, and I would at least be more open to an argument that were along the lines of, you know, king queen could be good. Um, I mean, Yaga mentions the possibility of the villain betting lower Broadway cards, um, in which case, you know, the, so like the more that you're thinking, well, I might just have showdown value even if the clubs don't get there. Um, you know, that increases the value of calling. If you think like the backdoor straight and the backdoor flush draw have some value, which they do, that increases the value of, of calling. So the more that you can kind of draw in equity, like you think about it like a diversified portfolio. I mean, if, if all of your eggs are just in the bluff to represent a flush basket, that's definitely, definitely not a plus EV call. Now, if we're drawing little bits of equity from sometimes king high is good, sometimes I hit backdoor draws, sometimes I represent the flush, I mean, we're getting closer, but honestly, I still think all those things, the, the amount of value that we're drawing from all those is so small. I mean, backdoor flush draws are worth maybe like half a big blind, maybe one big blind, or you know, the backdoor draws collectively worth worth probably less than a big blind. Um, the chance of King High winning at showdown, certainly worth less than one big blind, representing the flush worth less than one big blind. So, I mean, we're, we're pulling in maybe like two big blinds of EV from all those places, and we have to call 5.4. So we're still not really even that close to, um, to, to, to making up the equity that we need with calling. Um, I don't think hitting a king or a queen is, I mean, that's good about as often as just having king high is good. Like if opponent does, if the opponent doesn't have an ace, you probably don't need to hit the king or the queen to win. If he does have an ace, then hitting a king or a queen doesn't help you. So I actually don't think making pairs does all that much for you. Um, so I think even even recognizing that you can draw in value from a few different places, uh, I still just don't think this is this is a call. Um, now you do want to have some bluffs when a club comes on the turn, but you don't need to go out of your way to find those. Like you shouldn't just call with a hand that you would never otherwise consider calling with just so that you can represent clubs. If you had um, you know, king queen with the king of clubs, that would be a slightly better call here because now and you would also, well, you'd have a few things going for you. First, you'd have the backdoor nut flush draw. So that would make calling a little bit more appealing. And second, um, you would have a blocker when you did make this play of representing clubs. And the problem, so the problem with just like arbitrarily calling with hand, because the really, I mean, the, at, at no point does Yaga Smurf make an argument for why, uh, why he's making this play with King Queen and not with some other hand. So the, and the problem with making these bluffs were, or any, any sort of play really, where you're not considering, considering your cards. Although I do think it comes up most often with bluffing is, you know, people people just tend to sort of think about what they can represent and not why they're doing it with this particular hand. The problem is it's almost always easier to make weak hands than to make strong hands.
And if you bet every single time you have a strong hand, if, if, you know, if, if every time you have a weak hand, you bet as though you had a strong hand, you try to represent a strong hand, you're going to end up being wildly imbalanced towards bluffs. And that means that any player who calls too much is immediately exploiting you. They don't have to know that this is your strategy. They don't have to say, you know, that Yaga Smurf, he, he likes to represent those flushes when they come in. Um, you know, if he's just a stubborn guy who doesn't want to fold top pair, he's, uh, he's exploiting you if you decide that you're going to bluff, you're going to overbluff in this situation, or if you end up overbluffing in this situation because you just bluff every weekend you could have. Uh, and that's how most people play. <laughs> like your average opponent, especially at five cent, ten cent, is going to be an overly loose player. So I don't think their good adaptation is to say I'm going to err on the side of doing like heaps and heaps of bluffing. Which I realize is not what Yaga is saying explicitly, but I think implicitly it is what he's doing. Is he's going out of his way to find weak hands to bluff with, and I don't think that's a, a successful strategy in at these sticks. Like I think your your bluff should come naturally when you call with hands. Um, when you call with hands that it makes sense to call with for other reasons and then you know you happen like whatever you were drawing at misses or you end up deciding your hand doesn't have as much showdown value as you thought but there is something that you can represent i mean just those those sort of like natural calls turn into um like those already give you your bluffs on on later streets you don't you don't generally need to go out of your way to hold weak hands on later streets this board actually is a little bit of an exception because there aren't other draws really besides the clubs. I mean, there's like, you shouldn't really have stuff like 4-3 suited in your range where you'd be making gut shots. So arguably, like, King-Queen of Hearts is the next best draw after after the clubs. Um, I think the other part of the issue here on the flop is just that we should be folding a lot. This is just a very good board for the under-the-gun Razor. Um, he has a big range advantage on this board. It's hard for him to have weak hands. You know, under-the-gun should mostly have either pocket pairs or big aces in his range. Like, that's most of what an under-the-gun opening range looks like. So this is a very good board for him. It's a it's a board where he actually is going to struggle to find bluffs. I mean, Yaga Smurf says he might just have air, but he doesn't really specify what air would be, which is, is I think, a mistake. The more specific you can be um, about, you know, when you're thinking that your opponent might be bluffing or betting with a weak hand, Ideally, you try to be specific about what those would be. And when you do that here, you see that there aren't really any. I mean, so Yaga Smurf, he says he could be betting with uh, an ace, with pairs, I guess he means pocket pairs, connected Broadway, and air. I don't see what the air would be. I mean, maybe like 9-8 suited or something. Like, for the most part, his under-the-gun opening range should already be encapsulated by pocket pairs, ace-x, and connected Broadway. There's not really other stuff he should be opening under the gun. So this is you know, already an extremely good board for Under the Gun's opening range. And then on top of that, Under the Gun's making a large bet, which means we don't really have incentive to call all that often. Uh, you as the hero are going to have, um, you should have a decent amount of ace-x in your own calling range. So you're going to be calling anytime that you have an ace. And then you're going to have some club draws. You'll be calling with those. I don't know that you really need to go out of your way to find other calls in this um in, in this situation, uh, I think that in theory, you know, you would need some hands to uh, to represent the clubs when they come in, like because you are going to have value bets when a club comes in. You'd want to have some bluffs, and so again, I think a hand like king queen with the king of clubs or even the queen of clubs would be a better candidate for that than than king queen of hearts um i also think this is probably an okay situation to just overfold and accept that yeah he's going to get some profitable bets when he raises under the gun and gets like one of the best possible flops for under the gun he's just going to get some profitable bluffs then that might just be correct um you know you, you 
aren't really going to find value looking for uh, really thin calls against big bets from under the gun raisers on a sideboards. You, you should be folding a lot in that situation. But enough about the flop call. I want to talk a little bit about the logic on later streets as well. And the main problem I'm seeing is there's not a, what I would call bluff targeting, meaning on the turn, there's no real discussion of what hand are we trying to get the villain to fold. And that becomes apparent because on the river, all of a sudden, Yager Smurf says, oh, it seems like he has an ace, and I didn't think he was going to fold an ace. And that's something to consider on the turn. If you don't think he's going to fold an ace, this bluff is not going to be successful. I mean, he has plenty of ace acts. He has enough ace acts in his range that if he just, you know, calls all the way down to the river with an ace, even when the clubs get there, even if, I mean, in this case, he ended up having the king of clubs, but even without it, um, if you believe your opponent is, you know, not going to fold an ace or is unlikely to fold an ace, you should absolutely not be attempting this bluff because he doesn't have that much else in his range and your king queen blocks some of the other stuff in his range um, or you're ahead of it. Like if he has king jack, there's not really value in making him fold that when you have king queen. So you need to be clear on the turn, like if you're, if you're, or really even on the flop when you make this call and you're already planning ahead that you're going to be trying to bluff when clubs come in, the question to ask yourself is bluff him off of what? Right? It's not just I'm trying to make him fold. You need to be clear about what hands are you trying to make him fold because that's going to tell you which streets you should bet, how much you should bet, whether or when you should give up. Um, all that is, is determined by having a clear sense of what you're trying to accomplish in the first place, which hands you're trying to get him off of. So on the turn, really on the flop, you should already be saying to yourself, okay, if clubs come in, I'm going to run a big bluff and try to get him off the nice. And I say a big bluff because I think that's what's going to be necessary to get him off an ace. You know, it's, it's hard to get people off of top pair. I'm not even saying it's going to get him off of an ace, but I mean, if you're going to go for it, you need to go big. You're not going to be able to half-ass it and get your opponent off of an ace. Um, but it shouldn't be a surprise. Like, you shouldn't all of a sudden get to the river and then be like, oh, crap, you know, I already called the flop with a very weak hand and, you know, made a big bluff on the turn, and all of a sudden now we're on the river and suddenly I've realized, hey, my opponent might have top pair and he's probably not going to fold it. Guess I better give up. You know, if, if that was going to be the plan all along, I think you're better off just not going down the road in the first place. Um so my point is not so much that you should have left the river. Really, my point is just that you should have folded the flop and also that you should have thought ahead. Like, I don't think it makes any sense to call the flop and then not bluff the river. Um, but I think really the, the solution is not like, well, you should have called the flop and then barrel turn in river. The solution is you should have just not called the flop in the first place. Um, so other questions were about what is the influence of the villain holding the king of clubs? Um, Yes, it certainly does make him easy, make it easier for him to call. I mean, on the turn, obviously, because he has a draw to the to the nut flush. But even on the river, it's a very important blocker for him. Um, yes, it's true that you can have other club draws, like you could have queen jack of clubs or jack ten of clubs or something. But still, the king of clubs is very significant in terms of blocking uh, the possibility. Like it might be cutting in half the risk of you having a flush. So yes, absolutely, the king of clubs is a big deal for him. Um, I, if I were him, I would definitely be calling this um, this river shove. Or you know, if, if you had bet the river, I would certainly be calling holding ace king with the king of clubs. 
Um, now, you didn't know that, though, right? So, uh, you didn't know that he was holding the king of clubs. I mean, you have to consider the possibility that he might be. And that's not, you know, when you're thinking about a bluff target, ace-king with the king of clubs would not be the target. You'd be thinking about what would it take to get him off of, like, ace-king with the king of spades, for instance. You know, uh, an ace-king that doesn't have a flush draw. That's the sort of hand you'd be thinking of as um, as a target. So you should consider the possibility that he has the king of clubs, but you don't know that, that he had. I mean, if you knew he had it, you shouldn't be trying for this bluff, but of course you didn't know that. Um, and then the other question was, should the villain have check-raised the turn, or should Yagasmurf check-raise the turn if in the villain's shoes? And I would ask you, what does that accomplish? I think sometimes, and I don't know that this is what Yagasmurf is doing, but I think often people feel like they should better raise just because their hand is good. Like, well, I have top pair. You know, of course I bet. I have top pair and a flush draw. Of course I bet. Of course I raised. Those by itself, I mean, just describing your hand doesn't tell you anything about whether you should call or raise, or fold, even. Uh, you need to think about how does betting or how does raising, what does it accomplish for you? I mean, the two main things it would accomplish is either making the pot larger when you're a favorite to win it, or causing your opponent to fold equity. So does check raising the turn accomplish either of those things? And as a reminder, the board on the turn would be ace, deuce, deuce, seven with three clubs. The villain's holding ace, king with the king of clubs. He's bet the flop and being called. He's checked the turn. Now the hero is bet. And the question is, should the villain be check raising the turn when he's got top pair, top kicker, and a nut flush draw? Um... I think no. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a mix in, in a Pio Sauver, but I mean, it's definitely not a mandatory raise, uh, and, and mostly no. I mean, what the villain has is a very good bluff catcher. You're representing a flush, right? You're not representing really a hand, many hands worse than ace-king. You're mostly representing a flush, um, which is, you know, a, a, that's explicitly what Yaga says he's doing, is representing a flush. And ace-king is not ahead of a flush. So, I mean, if you're polarized, if, when you bet the turn, if you're sufficiently polarized that you either have a flush or nothing, he has no incentive to raise you with ace-king. Because if you have the flush, he's way behind. Even though he has outs, he is way behind. And if you don't have the flush, what does raising accomplish? You're drawing dead. I mean, basically any hand you could be bluffing with on the turn is drawing dead or damn near dead against ace-king with the king of clubs. So what, is incentive, what incentive does he have to raise and cause you to fold? He would make more money checking and calling, right? If, if, if he raises, he guarantees he loses the maximum when you have a flush and wins the minimum when you don't have a flush. So I don't think raising accomplishes very much at all on, on the villain's part if, if the better, in this case the hero, if his range is just flushes and bluffs. The reason to raise would be if we think the hero could have a more diverse range that might include like some worse ace-x, then, the then the villain starts to have some incentive to raise with ace-king in order to make the pot larger because you know, ace-king with the king of clubs is a pretty big favorite against like ace-queen. Right? It's almost a lock against ace-queen. So we do start to have some more incentive to raise if we put some like weaker ace-x in the hero's range. But I definitely don't think it's like, um, oh, what a fish. The villain didn't raise when he had top pair, top kicker, and the, and the nut flush draw. Like, this is probably how I would to play the hand in the villain's shoes. I think overall the hand plays better as, as a, um, a check and call on the turn than it does as a bet or as a check raise. Hope that makes sense. Hope you found that helpful, uh, Yaga Smurf and everyone else. Thank you, Yaga Smurf, for writing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a great friend of the show.
Thank you everyone else for listening. Thank you in advance for the emails and the hand histories, uh, other strategy questions that you are going to send to podcast at thinkingpoker.net if you want to hear them discussed on the air. Thank you for the money you are about to spend to support Give Directly at www.nitcast.com. And thank you for listening to our interview with Maria Konnikova. No, seriously, I um, I was just talking to my husband before this, and he said, "What are you? Do- what do you have at seven thirty? Because normally I try to keep e- evenings free." And I was like, "No, no, this podcast is really worth it. These guys are just incredible. They're so smart. They're so just such deep thinkers. They're the name of their podcast is accurate, and it's one of the it's one of the conversations that I look back on most fondly. Like you guys are just great. So thank you." That's it's very kind of you, and you should uh, recall something that I think you already know, which is that I think we have by far the best audience in poker too. Like we're just constantly getting really good feedback, and I'm constantly learning about um, really thoughtful people who are listening to the show. And so, uh, even though you may never hear from them, either because they're busy and they never write, or because we don't forward on the thoughtful things they write, like you're really uh, reaching. A, a large and extremely, extremely thoughtful audience. I don't doubt it. You know, you you get back what you put out there, and you guys really you d- you do the work, and it shows. I um I don't listen to a lot of poker podcasts, to be honest, and yours is one of the only ones that I've listened to episodes just because I like the show, and it's not like I have a huge queue of podcasts to go, but um. But I'm a fan. Oh, that's awesome. what, what is your? Yeah, that's that's very kind, and thank you. And I'm curious about the uh, information diets of successful and prolific people. <laughs> like, if it's not a lot of poker podcasts, what, what what do you put in your brain? You know, I actually this this is terrible, but I don't listen to that many podcasts just because I don't have that much time to listen and really absorb the information. Because when I listen to a podcast, I'm not multitasking; I'm actually listening. I want to hear what you have to say, and so whenever I choose to listen to one, I just block off that amount of time. I say, okay, you know, this is this is what I'm doing right now. It's not like I'm listening while reading something else while watching something else. I'm a big believer in unitasking. Um, And so I, in terms of podcasts, whenever something seems like it's worthwhile, I'll, I'll listen, but it's not like I have a show that I listen to every single day because that would take too many hours out of every single day. I I sometimes hear computer programmers, that's my field, say that they can listen to podcasts while doing computer programming. And that is, I it strikes me as basically impossible. But no. Other, you know, <laughs> people, people are not all the same. People are not all the same. Yes, if, but. If it's not podcasts, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, let me, let me just caveat that by saying, so my first book, Mastermind, um, was about mindfulness. It was about Sherlock Holmes, but really it was about mindfulness. 
And I did a lot of research into multitasking, and it's not possible. They're not actually deeply, they're not engaged with either one or the other. If they're doing good computer programming work, that means that the podcast is going in one ear and out the other. If they're listening to the podcast, that means their programming is shit. Yeah. I um, I once read that research indicated that uh, unitaskers are actually the best multitaskers. Like, not only is unitasking generally better than multitasking, but if you just, like, force people to multitask, the people who are better at it are, are not the people who habitually multitask. Like, it's just bad for you. And, yes. and unitaskers will even beat them at multitasking. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. There's a wonderful study that was done a number of years ago, I think like five years ago, maybe four or five years ago, at Columbia University that looked at um, heavy and light media multitaskers. And the, the heavy multitaskers are the ones that, you know, have 20 browser tabs open and are doing all these things at once. And the light multitaskers are the ones who say, you know, what are browser tabs? I do, you know, just a few things at a time. I don't really know what you're talking about. And they had them do a few different tasks. They had them do one thing that was task switching um, and one that was within a task switching just what they were supposed to be doing. So they had to switch between tasks and then within a task they had to switch and it was predicated on what they were able to filter in and out. So it was things like, okay, you have to focus on the things in red and filter out the things in green. Okay. Now the tasks are switching, pay attention to letters and not numbers. Nope. Now pay attention to numbers and not letters. And they thought that the heavy multitaskers would be much faster at switching between tasks. And it ends up that that wasn't true. So yes, they were better able to, not filter out other information. So they, when you flashed something on the screen, they saw it even when they were supposed to be focusing on something else. But their reaction time was slower and it actually took them more time to switch between tasks, which is the thing that you think they should have been good at than people who were unitaskers who were, or light light multitaskers as, as the study called them. And so it ends up that their attention muscle had just atrophied. That's, you know, that's a very facile analogy. Take it with a grain of salt. It's not actually a muscle, yada, yada, yada. But it's a good, it's a good way of just visualizing it. They were worse at the thing they were supposed to be better at. It took them longer to figure out, oh, oh boy, I have to pay attention to something else. Um, and that's because they weren't used to just paying attention to anything. They were just scatterbrained. And that was a really important finding that to me signaled that this is not necessarily a great thing for the brain. So hey, we should probably ask you about the book that like you recently wrote. Um, I'm very interested in the book that you, uh, I'm still very interested in, in all your other books too. Um, uh, I mean, what uh, authors say different things about, you know, their, their nth book. Some people say they start to get bored of writing books. Some people say they're much, much better at writing books. Uh, some people say, you know, they can't believe how bad their first book was, you know, what, what, uh, just as a serial book author, even putting aside the substance of the most recent book, what what, what do you think of the, uh, you know, just being a book writer with, with that much experience now? I don't think it matters. Um, I mean, yes, it matters to the extent that experience always matters. 
But when people ask me, oh, you know, your second book must have been so much easier than the first and the third must have been so much easier. The answer is absolutely not. Each book is different. Each book poses different challenges. Each book is a different challenge to me and my goals are different. What I'm striving for is different. And so each one is just as nerve wracking and just as difficult. And honestly, if I had to say which one was my hardest, I would say this one because it was such a departure for me. I mean, it's a first person memoir. I am not a first person writer. I don't write personal essays. It's just just to give you a sense of how much of a departure it was for me. I've been married for over 10 years and a lot of people didn't realize that I was married. Like this is, this is how much of a departure it is for me because I do not share my personal life ever. I'm someone who is both a public, but also intensely private. I really guard the, you know, I guard my family. To me, that's that's my business. And this book was somewhere where I had to actually go into that, go into myself, go into my personal issues, go into my life. And that was really scary for me. And I didn't know if I could find a voice to do that. I didn't know how it would all come together. It was just petrifying. I did not know until the until I did it, I didn't know if I could pull this off. And I, I just stared at the computer and thought, wow, is this book going to happen? Or am I going to have to, you know, just tell both my publisher and everyone else who's been following on this journey that, guys, sorry, you know, the, the biggest bluff just ain't happening. <laughs> so if, if I have the details of this right, I, I think you would you initially thought you might put the book out sooner and then you kind of decided to postpone it to uh, continue sort of focusing more on poker or not take your focus as, as much away from poker. Am, am I recalling that correctly? Yes, you absolutely are. Um, initially, the book was was due multiple years ago. Was there an element of, uh, I mean, looking back on it, do you think part of that uh, fear played into that as, as well of just like, I don't know how to do this or I'm not sure I want to do this. Let's put it off. Um. You know, it must have on some level, but I think more of it was I didn't think I had the book yet. I didn't think I had enough material. I didn't want to be the type of person who just flits in and out of an industry or a world and says, okay, you know, hi, I'm a spectator. I did this. I'm done. Um, I truly fell in love with poker. And I think this is, I got so lucky that Eric Seidel agreed to be my mentor and coach through this process because he shared his love with me. And it really, it made me see and appreciate the game and come to it from a very different angle because Eric loves poker. I mean, he is passionate about it. And he just, he instilled that in me. That's the, I saw it through his eyes. And it made me realize you know, I have to actually represent this game well. I have to do what it takes. And one year just ain't going to cut it. I can't just flit in and out and say, okay, you know, I've been here, done that. Let me write this uh, voyeuristic book of I was in this world and now I'm not. I wanted to really understand it. And I hope that that shows in my book. I hope that that comes through. The fact that I have grown to love it and appreciate it. And by the way, I don't plan on going anywhere. My husband and I just rented a place in New Jersey for July so that I could play the WSOP online. <laughs> so I am serious about this. 
I, I will say that you impressed me in this regard. I mean, before I ever met you or really knew much of anything about you, right, when I first heard, uh, you know, there's this person and she you know, wants to write this book about poker. She doesn't really know anything about poker. She's going to try to spend a year as a professional poker player and then write this book. I was very, like, eye-rolly about the whole <laughs> the whole thing. Um, and then, you know, after, once I spoke to her, even once I, like, I learned a little bit more, once you, like, certainly once I met you or once I spoke to you, you know, I, I saw that your you know, interest in this was deeper than just, um, like you said, the sort of voyeur. Because, I mean, it is a weird little world to be a voyeur in, and I suppose that could be an interesting book also. I think that book has maybe kind of been written already. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, I think you you definitely uh, made a lie of my um, my prejudice in that, in that regard. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. That's what I was trying to... That's what I was going for. No, seriously, I felt like the book I needed to write... I needed to spend more time in this world. I needed to, I, I felt like it was still giving me so much and I hadn't learned the lessons. And it was funny, you know, after I started doing well, after I won the PCA National, that would have been such a natural point to stop because in terms of narrative, talk about a Hollywood story, right? You, you know, you go from zero to winning an international title and you think, you know, this this is great. This is the, This is the ending of the book. We've got it. To me, though, it was very different. It was this experience of, okay, I did this, but everyone's looking at me and thinking, luck box. You know, <laughs> you just just totally luck boxed this tournament. Um, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I played some good hands, but I also got insanely lucky. There's a hand that – so, I wrote down every hand I played um, at the final table and – that was because I knew I was writing this book, but there was a hand that I totally forgot. I got in sevens against aces pre-flop as a shorter stack. I should have been out of that tournament in fifth place. Like that, that should have been it for me. And I wasn't. I lucked out. I didn't even hit a set. I hit a straight. You know, talk about just, you know, somehow sidestepping the odds and, and, just cheating your way to victory not cheating but you know what i mean like yeah. che cheating the odds <laughs> and, and yes i realized that given given everything happening in the poker world that was a bad choice <laughs> <laughs> but when i looked at that hand i was like damn you know the rest of it was just icing on the cake like that was just a bonus i shouldn't have been in the tournament and I was so grateful for that and so appreciative of it. And also, it made me realize that I had to keep going because I had to prove to myself, I didn't even care about how other people saw it because people outside of poker were like, wow, she won a tournament. How awesome. Like, let's read this book. To me, it was an uh-oh. I don't want to be someone who was seen as just a luck box. I want to prove to myself that I can do this, that I can actually have good results after this, that my skill is also evolving to the point where I can make final tables. And so I decided in that moment that I had to keep going and that I had to recommit and that this was not the end of the book and could not possibly be the end of the book. Because that way I would just completely betray my original question, which was how much of our lives do we control? What skill and what's chance? Where does luck end? You know, where does skill end? What are? How do you disambiguate the two? And if I ended with the victory, that would have been cheating. Maybe this is giving away the end of the book. In which case, you know, feel free to uh, 
stall or, or <laughs> however you need to answer. But uh, how, how do you differentiate the two? I have not come to a good answer uh, to that question after 15 years of doing this. <laughs> um, you know, I think that you just need to learn to look at the process and the outcome as two separate things and try to figure out, okay, what are the things that I control? And let me maximize those. Let me do it to the best of my ability. And I honestly still don't know, you know, maybe after after PCA, I did end up getting a number of other final tables and good results. And did that really prove that I was more skilled than I was lucky? I don't know. I mean, variance really needs years. Um, I don't know if three years is enough. I don't know when will be enough. I think Eric Seidel has proved that he has the skill to <laughs> survive. I think he he shows that skill shines over the long term. But I think I think the the answer is that there is no answer. I mean, poker teaches you to be comfortable in these gray zones, this zone of uncertainty, this zone of I'm not quite sure, you know, where exactly I am. Here's my certainty level, you know. But but I don't think that we can get an equation like poker or life is X percent skill, X percent luck. I don't think that's possible, both because, I mean, it's it's a silly way of looking at it if you think about it, but also because the equation changes depending on the time horizon. If you're looking at the immediate term, if you're looking at you know, at life and in the immediate term, if you're looking at a poker game, if you're looking at a year, if you're looking at a tournament, um, it's very different from if you're looking at several years, multiple tournaments, you know, hundreds of hands versus thousands versus tens of thousands versus hundreds of thousands. There's a huge difference. And I think over the long term, variance evens out and skill shines through. And someone like Eric, you can tell the difference between skill and luck. And believe me, he didn't luck box you know anything he he is incredibly skilled sure he got lucky along the way and he got lucky early on to be on the right side of variance that's also something i talk about in the book it's something that i actually thought about after you know when i was just starting out um in this poker world um fader holtz was still not retired um he was still playing the high rollers and everyone was talking about his insane run of luck. And this was before the Justin Bonomo run or anything like that. So Fader was kind of this outlier. And I remember someone at the time did an actual statistical analysis to see where Fader was in the distribution. And they found that he was just completely at the edge of the curve um, in the sense of just he'd, he was obviously a skilled player, but he'd also gotten insanely lucky. And in the book, I write about the idea that I had at the time of the anti-Fedor. There was someone out there <laughs> who was actually just as skilled, but who happened to find himself on the opposite side of that curve in the opposite end of the distribution and never found out how skilled he was. Because at the beginning, the the variance was just completely shitty and on the opposite end of it. And I don't even want to think about all the anti-Fedors out there. Yeah, I'm inclined to say, I mean, I, I definitely take your point. And I think if, if by skill you mean sort of like raw talent or like potential to be right. as good as, as Fedor, I think that's true. You know, I think those people never get a chance to become as skilled as Fedor exactly. because they quit. They just decide like poker well, is not exactly fun. Right. Exactly, <laughs> because they, don't, they, they never even realize that they have that talent. 
And so they just they just leave because their results are so horrible to begin with. Yeah. But that's just luck because in the short term, this is going back to your question. In the short term, you can't you can't figure out the difference, and you sometimes conflate the two, and you sometimes think that you know bad variance is actually you know bad skill, um, and and the opposite. Sometimes people who end up being really shitty poker players are at one point hailed as these god sentence because they ran like god yeah uh, you know i uh i mean i deeply love poker but i also don't feel bad for those people who don't run well at the beginning um <laughs> I, I like I, I have a friend who was you know like a big a big person in poker had a really really successful career likes to talk about a, a dorm room hand he played where if he hadn't held up aces over kings like he probably would have just quit poker forever then so never mind all the other times you might have quit. There was like 15% right then that this like wonderful career uh, wouldn't have happened. But like now, I mean, he left poker a long time ago, uh, at least a decade ago. He's very successful elsewhere. He probably would have just been like as successful just a little bit earlier. Like those people who have it in them to be amazing at poker and just didn't run well at the beginning, like... I think they're fine. I think they're fine. I think they're doing great <laughs> things. And they eventually got into some other area of life where their skills serve them well and they play with their friends in the basement, or I guess on Zoom these days on Friday nights. And, and you know, they're just like really wonderful actuaries or, or whatever, or, or business owners or whatever. This is what I want on my tombstone. She was a wonderful actuary. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I take your point. I take your point. I mean, we certainly see that a lot with um, just, you know, the number of people where we've talked to them. And obviously, like, we're strongly selecting for people who have, have hung in the poker game for a while in terms of people that we're interviewing on the show. And, uh, you know, we're often asking people about their, like, origin stories and how they got started in poker. And the number of people who will say that, they, you know, I, I won the first tournament I played. I didn't know what I was doing. But I, I mean, it's uh, just anecdotally you you can see <laughs> that effect that you're talking about. Yeah, well, I did not win the first tournament I played. In fact, I was really despairing um, in the first number of tournaments I played. Um, but I was, was very lucky, once again, that I had uh, Eric Seidel as a mentor. And he made me play, you know, $35, $45, $55 nightly and daily tournaments in Vegas until I started winning them. And so even though I was losing and losing and losing, um, it wasn't quite as terrible as, as playing higher stakes. And the first time I won, it actually paid for, you know, a month of those tournaments um, that I had been losing. But it was very dispiriting. And it was very good to have the example of him. And he introduced me to all of these amazing people. And I could see them and I could see what was possible. And I knew that I needed to hang on and try to break through. And don't don't get me wrong, I've never broken through. I'm nowhere near that level of player. I'm I'm happily mediocre and trying my best to get better but um but seeing that that level of play was possible seeing what was out there seeing the types of minds and how they thought about the game that was really inspiring that was something that kept me going even as i busted tournament after tournament at planet hollywood <laughs> do you have any particular 
uh, objective in, in poker at this point? I mean, it sounds like you said you're not you're not finished with it. Are you just sort of, you know, keep at it as long as it's fun? Is there a, a clear sort of goal destination endpoint for you? Well, it's not, it's not the fun element to be perfectly honest. It's the fact that I feel like I'm still learning to be a better version of myself, that it's still teaching me things about decision-making things about how my mind works, things about kind of the biases I have and the, the, decision-making hang-ups that I have, psychological hang-ups that I have, that it's still teaching me things and it's still interesting from a from an intellectual standpoint that there's still challenges and I still feel like there's so much to learn um, and that it's it has so much to teach me about myself that I can then apply elsewhere. And while that's the case, I don't see myself stopping because why stop? And by the way, I also enjoy it, obviously. <laughs> but but if I just enjoyed it, you know, I would not take it as seriously. But right now, you know, I'm actually really taking seriously the fact that, you know, I'm going to be playing these events online. I'm not an online player. It's very, very different. I need to try to figure out a way to prepare. Luckily, you know, with with Eric in my camp, I had a lot of other people behind me. And so I have someone like Phil Galfond, who is an uh, online player, who, you know, I can reach out to. And he's like, okay, these this is what you need to do to prepare for online MTTs. And this is what you need. And these are the people to talk to. And the fact that I have those resources still, um, that I don't take that for granted. I know how rare that is. I know how lucky I am. And I hope that I won't let them down. I'm still trying to do my best to show that, okay, I can survive in this new format. Because to me, online tournaments are a new format. I did start off playing online. That was the first per- poker I ever did because I'm in New York. And when I was just starting, Eric made me go to New Jersey every day and play online just so I would get hands in and get the experience. But it's been a while. You know, it, I after that, I transitioned to live and I like live poker so much more that I never looked back. What What is the Phil Galfond approved preparation for online tournaments? Run It Once has some wonderful coaches on the elite level, so I would suggest purchasing a membership. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to shill for... for no, I, I second that opinion. But that's actually what he... He suggested a few coaches that I should follow and whose videos I should watch and a few learning paths. And then he's also there for, uh, for whatever I need. I mean, it's pretty crazy that, you know, in... 2017 I was able to record a tournament and send it to Phil and he'd analyze it for me and talk through hands and I can do that still today and he says that's fine Um, that's pretty insane and I understand how lucky I am to be able to do that because I certainly can't afford his time it's too expensive I was going to ask if you had any advice for people for whom uh, emailing a hand history to Phil Galfond was not an option. (laughs) Well, no, I do have advice for them. I mean, so I understand that run at once is expensive. It's worth it. It's worth every single penny. I have learned so much from those videos. It's not even funny. But there are a lot of free resources out there, including this podcast. And I'm not trying to shill for this podcast, just like I'm not trying to shill for for Phil. But there are good resources out there, both in terms of videos and in terms of audio. What I would suggest is that you don't just consume it passively. You consume it actively. So every run at once video, if the video is 40 minutes long or 30 minutes long, it takes me a minimum of two hours to watch it because I'm 
constantly pausing. I'm constantly rewinding. I'm taking notes. I'm figuring out what I don't know. I'm writing down questions. I'm writing down things I don't understand. I'm engaged with the video. And this video is the only thing I'm doing. It's not like I'm listening to it or watching it as I'm going to sleep or cooking dinner. This is it. This is what I'm focused on. And that's the advice I have for people because you would you'd be surprised at how rare that is. People don't tend to do that. They they will, you know, this goes back to where we started the conversation, multitasking versus unitasking. There's a big difference between active and passive learning. And my main advice for people is learn actively. Don't just watch the video, participate in the video, engage in the video, make sure that you understand the concepts, take notes. I have multiple notebooks of notes that I've taken on these poker strategy videos where you can actually see I have different boards written out, different hands written out. I'll write down different game trees so that I can go back to it later and study it and review it. And yeah, it takes a lot more time, but that's, I think, how you learn. That's how you actually improve as opposed to just thinking that you've gotten better because you've seen a video on, you know, three betting on monotone boards and you didn't actually absorb any of it. Yeah, I would say like 10% of the um, the video content that I create is begging people to pause. You know, I'm like, okay, stop, pause now, answer this question for yourself. Like actually do that. Don't just nod and say like, oh yeah, some people somewhere are probably doing that. Like you, you listening, stop, pause. Um, and I do you know, the other thing, because I think a lot of people do watch training videos for entertainment to some degree. I'll, like I think some people just like they enjoy watching other people play poker, and it's not that different from them from watching it on ESPN, which I think is fine. But I think people totally need to fine. distinguish between what are you doing for entertainment and what are you doing to study. And you know, whether, even if you're watching, I, even more so, you know, people watch Poker Go or something like that, where there is you know they're talking strategy, but it's not. It's not targeted. It's not active, as you say, and it's not. Um, it's not necessarily what you need as as a player. You know, it's, it, it would just be coincidence if they happened to talk about a thing that was useful to you. It's not something that you sought out, knowing, okay, I need to work on my play in three bet pots, and I know that you know this is going to be a chance for me to hear Nick Schulman talk about playing in in three bet pots. So I do think that people you know sh- shouldn't assume that just because you're watching something that has strategy content you are therefore studying or or learning um i mean i think that's basically what you're what you were saying but i think in, in addition to you know whether or not you're doing it actively i think also the choice of you know what to consume should also be an active uh choice absolutely absolutely and um, I actually love Poker Go and I subscribe to it and oh, I watch yeah, that's those not videos and I know, but I actually, so I love Nick and I love his insights. I think he's a brilliant commentator. When I'm actually looking at Poker Go to study, I mute the, commenta- the commentary and honestly, it's, it's often not Nick, but I will often just mute the commentators because that's not why I'm watching. I'm watching so that I can see what the people who are the best players in the world are doing so that I can stop the video and think, okay, you know, why did Jason Kuhn just raise here? And then I think through it for myself. And I think, what would I have done? Why would I have done it? What's my thought process? Okay, let's hit play and see what happens. And that to me is just such a good way of understanding certain plays because oftentimes like you'll see it in PO Solver and you'll then see someone doing it but unless you understand it like 
actually understand it at a deep level, you're never going to be able to execute it yourself. I will often spend days with a single hand from PO Solver because I want to understand why it's doing different things at different points. And PokerGo is a way of seeing how these great minds are able to apply this under pressure in game, you know, at these crucial moments and to see, okay, what's working? What's not working? Why are they doing this? And to just try to pause and think it through for yourself without listening to the commentators say, oh, you know, he's he's calling here. Oh, Oh, I guess he raised. Yeah, yeah, I can see why he raised. And it's this total hindsight bias where they often, well, not Nick. Nick is wonderful. But but where they will often just put their kind of the actual thing that happened, they'll try to recreate why it happened after the fact as opposed to just stop beforehand and think what's going to happen and why. And to me, it's just so much more useful to think it through for myself. Yep. That's great. That's great. I, I, I will say that Nick is like the one person who commentates like a player. And yeah. it's really amazing. Like who somebody who will raise and somebody will raise in a spot that looks obvious for raising. And like Nick's really the one who I can think of who will say like, oh, you know, well, sometimes calling makes a lot of sense there. Like, here's yep. when you'd want to call and here's when you want to raise. And it's like, oh, like, yeah. like this person is eloquent enough that that he knows he can fill up the time and be coherent and give a narrative even if he's also like he's got his poker player brain fully turned on absolutely Um, and i love nick nick is my favorite commentator i don't think there's anyone like him and i will always even after i mute the commentary if it was nick i'm gonna unmute and listen to what nick had to say too and compare it with what i wrote down and it will actually be very useful because he will be one more poker brain that i deeply respect um, and his opinion will be one that I value. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I think we have like very similar epistemic priorities in terms of, of how we learn, um, the importance of focus, things like that. I think it's hard to stay in a really productive mindset. And like, I have a lot of infrastructure in my life in place to keep sort of reminding myself or shaming myself or incentivizing myself to like, you know, stay in these habits. Like what, what, what do you do to, uh, to stay healthy? How, how do you make yourself, you know, study deeply and unitask and be productive and do all the things you do? Um, every single morning I do Ashtanga yoga and then I meditate. And that is my morning every single day, seven days a week, no matter what. I did it even when I was traveling, even when I was in Macau and so jet lagged, I didn't know which way was up and would wake up at like three in the morning and just not know what hit me. I was in Macau for two weeks and I swear I was jet lagged every single day. I never got over it. It was just the most severe displacement I have ever experienced in my life. And yet I still did yoga and meditation. And to me, that is so crucial. I can't, I mean, I can function without it, but I don't want to function without it because it makes my mind and body just ready for the day and ready to take things in and puts me in a very focused mindset um, for the rest of the day. And especially when I'm playing live poker, when I'm playing tournaments, when I'm doing multi-day tournaments, you know, where I'm playing day after day after day. 
yoga is so important to actually keep your body ready at the table because it's exhausting. Sitting down is exhausting. When I work at home, when I'm writing, I have a standing desk. I actually stand for most of the day. It's very rare for me to be sitting at a table for that period of time. And my body feels it when I don't do it. It's I don't understand how people who don't have any sort of exercise or stretching or, or something, I don't understand how they're able to play poker at a high level because I just, my body would collapse. I, everything hurts. My back hurts. I just, I can't do it. And the meditation helps me keep an active and ready mindset for the rest of the day. I'm not saying everyone needs to do both of these things, but that's what works for me. Um, and then when I'm playing, I try to really keep in mind all of the lessons that I've learned along the way, which involve paying attention. So I don't have my phone out. You know, I'm, I don't have anything that can distract me from paying attention to the gameplay at the table while I'm playing. It's so easy to, when you're not in a hand, just be responding to email and on Twitter and on, you know, on Instagram, just checking all of these things. And you miss so much information. And one of the greatest gifts that Eric ever gave me was when I asked him the first time, you know, what's the one thing I need to know? I can't believe I asked him that question, but I did. Um, he said, pay attention. And that is just, that's so, so powerful. Two words that just make such a big difference. It's uh, not a coincidence that he's one of the very, very few people who were big names during the poker boom, uh, what, 17 years ago now? And uh, still, still crushing it at, um, yeah, that's that's not surprising. What 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 is he doing every day these days anyway? Like what what is like like other than winning at poker? Like what what poker is he winning at? What is he doing? <laughs> um so he he's playing online a little bit. He's teaching himself short deck and taking, you know, he's t he's learning the new games because Eric is Eric. So he's learning short deck because short deck is the new thing where a lot of the players are going. So he's trying to figure out, okay, let's, let's learn short deck strategy. And he's taking in life, which is what he always does. One of the reasons he's such a great poker player is because he's not just focused on poker. He's focused on living a good life. I mean, he loves music and theater and food and all of these other things. And he's passionate about them. And right now, you know, with, with no live poker, he has a lot of time to listen to music and to to d read the books he wants to read and to think about things he wants to think about. So I don't think he's uh, suffering. I mean, I think he misses live poker like we all do. I miss live poker. But he's uh, he's doing his best and he's keeping up his poker. He's learning a new variant that he's never played at a highly competitive level before. And it's just inspiring um, to see him do that and to be like, wow, um, you're still, you know, whatever the hot new thing is, you're there. You're learning it. And I will put money on Eric winning a short deck tournament when live poker comes back because I see what he's doing right now. I have no interest in betting against Eric Seidel. <laughs> we, I think we had Ron Upshaw on the show. He's a radio host in Washington who knows that like Eric is not um, into giving poker interviews uh, standardly. Like, like one thing that I remember Eric for is 
being upset with whole card coverage that players weren't being compensated for back in the day and like just generally being against people giving away strategy uh, uh, for free. But um, that's not the point of the po- story. The point of the story is that Ron Upshaw, I believe, had Eric Seidel on his radio show on the understanding that none of it would be about poker. So it's like, <laughs> I'm just going to talk to a, a poker player about, you know, literature and art and life. And that's, that's going to be the interview. And he said, it went great. Like <laughs> That's amazing. I love that story. It's perfect because Eric has so much to share about poker, about not poker, about art and life and music and all of these wonderful things. So I love that. I didn't know. I had no idea that he had done that interview. I mean, like like a few things rattling around in my brain, it might actually not be true. So I hope it. Had, but uh, no, I, sure I think it's is. true. I, I think the focus might have been somewhat more like specifically on underground hip hop. Oh yeah, well that that makes perfect sense. I mean, Eric knows all the underground stuff. Back when we still had it in New York um, before COVID, when we could actually go to clubs, he would frequently forward me things and and say, "Oh, you should really go to this." And I'm like, "Oh my god, it's at two in the morning. Are you kidding?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> and and you know, I think his daughters have the exact same impression that i do they say you know my dad's much cooler than i am i can't keep up (laughs) so have have you been in new york these last couple of months yes i'm in brooklyn how's that been um you know i i'm very lucky we have a roof over our heads food you know we're we're okay but um it's a little surreal it's hard to not be able to take walks to me that's one of the things that I love and value the most. I love walking. Um, I love just being outside and being able to just take a walk and think. And I can't do that anymore because it's way too stressful because, you know, not only am I wearing a mask, but a lot of people aren't wearing masks and I'm hypersensitive to that and I don't want to be anywhere near them. Um, I take, I'm taking this very seriously. I mean, my, my sister's a doctor, my brother-in-law is a doctor. Um, they they make sure to tell me that this is this is no joke, and I I need to take it very seriously. And it's really depressing that there are so many people that just think, even in New York, um, which is the epicenter of of the pandemic right now, um, that there are so many people that think, ah, it's fine. Like I don't have any symptoms. I'm just not going to wear a mask because the mask is uncomfortable. So suck it up and deal. But it's taken all the pleasure out of taking walks and being outside and being able to do that. So that's the one thing that I wish weren't happening. But you know what? I'm very, very lucky considering everything. I spoke to someone yesterday who was um, just sort of mentioned casually uh, in, in conversation that he was going to an underground poker game in, in uh, New York City last night. And, um, and that he was taking the subway to to get there i was uh, and this is this was someone like i i would not have thought would be would be doing. i was pretty like flabbergasted to i mean i i i was debating like how much i should it's not really someone i know well i didn't really feel like my saying anything was gonna like influence him much but i might have just been a coward but yeah it struck me as sort of like a, a very bad idea in a variety of ways Yep, I agree with you. Um, and I can't believe that Vegas is reopening, and I can't believe we have casinos and that some poker games are going and that people are going to them. Um, to me, that's incredibly scary um, and really depressing. 
Yeah, I spoke to someone also yesterday who um, who had played in uh, in Las Vegas, and I'm trying to think of. I guess he didn't really say anything that wasn't you know what you would have uh, what you would have expected. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have anything too interesting to say about that actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a scary proposition. I mean, I am not. I shudder to think what the next few weeks will bring. Um, and Las Vegas will have wonderful numbers because they don't count anyone who is out of town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. We don't have to uh, rail the entire podcast. Yeah. But, but I am someone who's a proponent of wearing a mask 100% of the time when you are outside. So if I could use this platform to say have a mask on always over your nose and mouth. No, you're not allowed to take it off when you want to. No, you're not allowed to just laugh or cough or sneeze or whatever or take a drink of water. Keep the damn thing on. And if you want to drink water, go back to your apartment and drink it. Does this apply if there's nobody for like 20 feet around you? No. But in New York, that is never the case, yeah. ever. All right. Yeah, I, I was feeling guilty for a second there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have the good fortune to live near twenty five hundred acres of of sort of public forest. Um, so. No, I'm I, speaking yeah. from the middle of New York City. Ah, yes. Uh, all right. All right. Every single person here should be wearing a mask one hundred percent of the time, always over their nose and mouth, no exceptions. Yeah. Well, I, I did get honked at and flipped off for not wearing a mask, like. But there was like really nobody. I, I was wondering if there was some new new wisdom. I wasn't like I was no, walking no. down the street. No, alone. if there's if uh, there's yeah. no one else there, that's totally fine. But like I said, in New York, that's impossible. Literally, even if you're out at you know, doesn't matter what time, two, three, four a.m. Doesn't matter. You, there will be other people. Yeah, I lived in New York City. Uh, I uh, yeah yeah that that makes sense. That makes sense. Andrew, I'm sure you have more questions. Yeah, I, I, I was going to ask if you've been playing in the um, in any of these you know, app games. I mean, not that they didn't exist before uh, COVID, but you know that, that have really uh, cropped up or gotten a lot more popular uh, now that you know with so many people not playing live poker. I have, I have in a few of them, um, some home games um, that I never would have played in before. I'm not much of a cash player, you know. I'm I'm someone who has always focused on tournaments. Very early on, um, when I was just starting out, we made the decision that I was going to focus on tournament poker because the strategies were just so different. And then, you know, over time, I picked up cash just because it's a good way of. Uh, you know, evening out variants. It's a good. It's a good way of bankroll management. I had a good temperament for it. Um, I don't like it an, as much. I don't enjoy it as much. I don't think it's as fun. Um, but I did start playing more ca- more cash as time went on. Um, but so, so online, you know, that's that's mostly what I've done is some of these some of these private games. But I, and I realized that over the next few weeks, I should ramp up and probably do some tournaments as I, as we go into the WSOP. But I just, I, it, it's hard um, in the sense that not only do I find online less enjoyable than live, but I am just 
so skeptical unless it's a game where I know every single player. Um, you know, we've had so many cheating scandals and online in these apps for over the last few weeks that I'm just so worried about collusion and all of these different things that um, I don't ever want to play for substantial money. Yeah, I think that's the right approach. Or that's my approach anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I'm willing to play for much lower stakes than I would play for live. So, originally, I was like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, this 1020 game looks great. And then I just thought, wait, no. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not, not doing that. Um, let, let's, keep it, let's keep it much, much smaller um, so that I can feel like I'm still in the game and still keeping up with things and yet don't feel like I'm risking that much. And even if people are cheating, I'm okay with it at the end of the day. I mean, I'm not okay with it, but you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's a risk I'm willing to take for that amount of money for more money. I'm not okay taking it. Do you see focusing on, on tournaments or kind of having that sense of tournaments being a, a primary focus do you see that as kind of parallel with the uh, single tasking? Because um, I could imagine the alternate argument also that you sort of become a more well-rounded player as a result of you know, studying different games and studying different formats, and maybe you learn something from cash, and then that helps you, uh, gives you sort of a new perspective on on tournament poker. How do you think about that? I think it depends on which stage you're in in your learning. I think it was completely right of Eric to make sure that I only focused on one thing at the beginning because I had a limited timeline. I wanted to really learn a lot in a limited amount of time. And you can't learn both cash games and tournaments at a high level quick. I mean, you can't learn them at a high level quickly, period. But if you're trying to do both at the same time, you're setting yourself an impossible task. And so I do think at the beginning, you really need to focus. And then as time goes on, as you gain proficiency, as you become more comfortable as a player, then I think you can branch out because, yeah, I think that playing cash and learning cash has helped me with, you know, the deep stack stages of a tournament and has helped me, you know, at, with, with those elements. So, sure, it's been great. I mean, learning PLO, you know, the, the great thing about knowing Phil Galfond is he'll push you to learn PLO and he'll be there to help you along the way whenever you want. So, finally, last year, I was like, okay, Phil, teach me PLO. And I started playing little PLO tournaments um, and sending him all my hands. And that's made me a better player. I mean, I'm much better um, equipped to to uh, use blocker value now that I ever was before, <laughs> right. before learning PLO. Um, and, um, you know, I think that all of these things are making me a better player. But it's just... It, was, it had to come at the right point in my development. If Phil had said, and Phil didn't even suggest it, you know, the, at, when he first knew me, he wasn't like, you should learn PLO. He only started suggesting it multiple years into my foray into the poker world um, because I think he, he's very smart and he's a very good coach and he realizes that, you know, you, you need to do one thing at a time. And at the time, it would have been not just useless, it would have been detrimental to my ability to understand just hold'em tournament strategy. And so I think you do, you do, you, you figure out where you are and what's okay at that point. Think about if someone had given me PO Solver on the first day I entered the poker world. I mean, that would have 
not only would I have just been overwhelmed and not known what in the world this thing was, but I probably would have used it incorrectly and it would have ruined my game and actually hurt me much more than it helped me. I eventually got it and I eventually learned to use it and learned to set up all these things and learned how to read the readouts and all of these elements, but that took time. That took over a year before I, you know, before I became comfortable enough to do that. And it was the right stage for me. I was ready to expand my mind in a different direction. But I think everything needs to come at the right moment. So was I right to just focus on tournaments at the beginning? Absolutely. Does having learned cash, having learned kind of other poker variants since then, you know, having dabbled in PLO and PLO8 and kind of all of these different things since then, has that helped me become a better player in general and in No Limit? Absolutely. What would you um, suggest as someone who, you know, I think like a big part of your success has been having, uh, as you said, you know, good, good coaches. And obviously they've been very good poker players, but I don't think, you know, it goes the other direction that like uh, any very good poker player is, is going to be a good coach. What do you think are the things that that made those people successful uh, coaches, either you know for working with you specifically or, or just in general? I think that they are very open-minded, very even-keeled. They are people who don't think there's a right way toward anything. They are just focused. I mean, if you talk to Phil, if you talk to Eric, they're focused on the process. They don't have this philosophy of there's this one way of playing a hand. And when they see a PO solver output, they take it with a grain of salt. They realize that there are lots of ways that this can change and lots of circumstances under which you'd play differently. They are both incredibly present players who adjust to their surroundings, who are able to use all the tools at their disposal, but figure out how to use them and when to use them and when to discard them. And it's not it's not just patience, which is, I think, essential for a good coach, but it's telling me that I can't really make a mistake and that my mistakes are okay. You know, there was there was a moment early on where actually independently, both Eric and Phil basically said, like, I don't care if you decide to five bet with seven four offsuit, that's fine, as long as you have a good reason for it. They are both so focused on process over anything else. If I have a good reason, they don't care if I make a mistake. They don't care if I do something egregious. They care that I've thought it through, that I know why I'm doing it and that it's motivated. They care on making me a good thinker, not someone who has, you know, a very high win rate at the beginning. I there's there's a chapter in the book about my time working with Phil or my early time working with Phil. And one of the things he told me was that I can make you a very profitable player very quickly by just teaching you a few things and you will just memorize them. You have a good memory and you'll learn it by rote and you'll have a good win rate. I don't want to do that because that will not make you a good poker player. That will just make you someone who is able to make money at poker. And those are two very, very different things. I want you to be able to think deeply about spots and to change your mind and to change your strategy and to think through things for yourself. And in order to do that, you can't memorize. You can't memorize range charts. You can't memorize, you know, these, all of these, this is what you do. That way you just don't get into trouble, but this way you will actually become 
someone who might be a good player over the long term. And that was really useful to me, even though at the beginning I was mad at both Phil and at Eric because <laughs> Eric would never tell me how to play a hand. I'd be like, okay, what do I do with pocket tens in the small blind after a raise and a re-raise? What am I supposed to do? You know, do I you know, do I jam? Do I call? Do I fold? What do I do with this, these different stacks? And he was like, well, let's think this through. Here's the <laughs> argument for this. Here's the argument for that. And I was like, just tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and neither one of them would ever give me an answer. And I think that that is the mark of a truly great coach. I think coaches who tell you this is how you play the hand, they're doing you a disservice. So we've got a chapter on working with Phil Galfond. What else should people expect to find in the biggest block? <laughs> um, so the people, I mean, Eric is the whole book. He's in every chapter. But um, there are a few players who have their own chapters. Um, Phil has a chapter. Well, not. I mean, none of them are whole chapters, but who are main characters in a chapter. Um, Dan Harrington has a chapter. Um, Lucky Chewy has a chapter. Ike Haxton has a chapter. Um, Jason Kuhn is a recurring character. Um, so you, you'll meet a lot of really great poker players and really great poker minds who've shared a lot of their wisdom with me along the way. And is that, uh, I mean, uh, should people expect that they're going to find like strategy in the book in the sense of, you know, how to play in three that pots? No, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not trying to uh, take your side of the market. That's you. Just <laughs> <laughs> decide whether we're going to run this interview or not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, every th all the insights that I have, and this is, I mean, it's funny. This is how I learned to play the game. It's not deeply strategic insights on how to play in three bet pots. It's all much broader, just almost philosophical ways of thinking about the game, which have been so helpful to me in making me a better player and telling me how to think through spots for myself um, and how to figure out, you know, how do I rely on my own mind in this moment? What are the things that are important? What should I be paying attention to? What should I be looking at? What are the questions I should be asking? What are the things that I should be paying attention to? That's what most of it is. And so all of the lessons you'll find are these meta lessons on approaches to the game. And I truly think that they are crucial in playing well. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you need you need the you need the nuts and bolts of strategy too. But but I think that the two combined are a very powerful combination. How do you go about I mean, my so my understanding is you know, this is not necessarily a book for poker not that it's not for poker players but i mean you wouldn't need to be a poker player to to read and appreciate this this book right i mean it's for a much Correct. broader audience so how do you go about um for people who aren't going to have any background whatsoever in like poker or poker strategy how do you give them the necessary context to yeah. understand lessons that you're learning I tried, so as I went along, I mean, I took copious notes throughout my journey, and I tried to put myself back in my mindset at the moment every single time. And I had multiple non-poker players um, read the book before, before the final version. And what I tried to do was put myself back in the mind of me. I tried to write the book for the me before I went on this journey, who didn't know how many cards were in a deck. I mean, it's hard for me to remember, but it's true. I actually thought there were 54 cards in a deck. I mean, that's just 
to me, it's crazy right now <laughs> to think that I could have been so wrong because then none of the math works. Nothing works. <laughs> it works when you have 54 cards in the deck. Just everything is all of a sudden crazy. Um, and so, and so that was my level of understanding when I started this. I didn't know people were like, oh, you know, well, you obviously knew that, you know, a full house was, but I was like, I didn't know what a full house was. I didn't know anything, literally nothing. And I wanted to write the book for the me at the beginning. And so I tried to make sure that every time I introduced a concept, I would explain it in a way that someone who didn't play poker could get it and could follow along with the lingo, but that someone who played poker wasn't bored, bored just stiff and thinking, oh my God, are we really going to have two pages now on the rules of Hold'em? You know, I, I tried to uh, explain it in two sentences so that we could just get through it quickly and get people just enough information that they could kind of get the gist of what was happening. And then at the end of the book, I have a poker glossary for people who really don't get a term and want to see something in more depth. Nice. And the book is out uh, June 20th or 22nd? 23rd. 23rd. Okay. So this, yes. this episode will most likely air on the 22nd. So it'll be just in time for people to pick it Excellent. up. Excellent. Uh, anything else you want to leave folks with? Um, no, I, I think that this was wonderful. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I think you guys are great. I hope you, you enjoyed know, we the always book. enjoy talking to you. Yeah, that's great. Um, and yeah, I hope I hope that people, you know, what I really what I really hope that I accomplished with this book is twofold. I hope that I get people who don't know anything about poker, who don't care about poker. I hope I get them interested in the game. I hope I get them to understand the potential of the game to make you into a better thinker, a better version of yourself. I mean, I truly believe that poker can do that. And I hope that for all the lawmakers out there, I have made them understand that this really is not gambling, that it's a game of skill. And uh, for all the poker players, I hope I didn't let them down. I hope that I've actually represented your world in a way that makes you proud. And let me leave you with something. I, I was trying to find a way to work this in uh, at the very beginning when you were tooting our horn. But um, <laughs> so we have on, on the, the main page for the podcast, I have some recommended episodes for people. It's called favorite episodes. But the idea is, you know, for people who are unfamiliar with the show, if they go to the the you know, main page and they're just like, oh, I should listen to an episode. What is the show about? Like, I'm a little worried about them just listening to a random episode because we're so all over the place in terms of, of what we cover. And I don't necessarily want them to, to judge us, you know, just based on, on a random episode. Uh, so th there's six that we highlight. And one of them is, uh, this is out of, you know, 320, this will be our 329th episode. Um, so out of those, we, we highlight six and one of them is our first interview with you. Oh, that really makes me happy. Thank you guys so much. That means Oops. a lot. It was a pleasure talking to you, and good luck with the new book. Thank you. I appreciate that. Take, take care. It's been a pleasure. Stay safe. Thank you, and you as well. Devotion of a car, light of the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law? I know you won't.